Let's stand and take our Bibles tonight. We're going higher. Amen. Psalms 131. Psalms 131. We're in our series, I'm Going Higher, Psalms 131. We are in step number 12. There are 15 steps in these psalms. I was thankful Pastor Rossi preached from Psalms 127 last Sunday morning on uh, the heritage of the Lord. That was a blessing, a good compliment to what we've been going through. Psalms 131, one of the shortest psalms in the Bible, but probably one of the most important ones we need to read today. And it's going to be a little bit of teaching time this, this evening. I want to teach you and preach to you this evening. I want you to take some good notes tonight. But uh, I would tell you tonight, if you'll, you'll catch what we're going to be studying tonight, it's probably the most important themes we've ever studied. And uh, we need what's found here in Psalms 131 as we break it down and get into it. I'm praying that God will work in your heart. And then Wednesday night, we'll be back in our series. Lord willing, we'll be back in our series on uh, 2 Thessalonians. You need to be here for that on, on, on Wednesday night. I'm going to be preaching, Lord willing, from 1 Thessalonians 2, 2, or 2, 3, on the falling away. Now, I'm not going to cover everything on it. I probably might give it probably a cursory thing. But if you are concerned about prophecy, and by the way, you should be concerned about prophecy. You want to be here Wednesday night as we, as we be preaching on the subject of the falling away. We are, we're, it's not hap, it's when it's going to happen. We're in it right now. It's going on right now. And uh, we need to understand some things that are going on right now and put it in perspective there. So I want you to be much in prayer for that. And I, I'm, really, I'm, I'm just really praying, asking God for his leading there. I, I, I feel led. I need, really need to preach the book of Revelation next year for our church and uh, just on things that are going on. And uh, I, I talked to somebody at dinner last night. I was at a, a dinner, family dinner thing. And he said, what are you, what are you preaching, teaching on? And, and it's a young man. He said, uh, I said, well, we're, this is what we're at. He says, wow. And he said, uh, you know, just, he said, I think about Revelation. It's just kind of way over my head. And I think that's how a lot of people feel. But uh, to understand Revelation is to understand the future, where, God, where we're headed with things. And that's a good thing. By the way, it's great to be a Christian because we know what's going to happen in the future. Amen? And uh, that, that's a wonderful thing you can tell a lost person that we know how it's all going to work out and turn out there. So we thank God for the future. Psalms 131. Say, say amen if you're there. Listen very carefully, and then I want you to get your pen out. I'm going to have you underline some words again, okay? Here we go. Lord, my heart is not haughty, nor mine eyes lofty. Neither do I exercise myself in great matters or in things too high for me. Surely... I have behaved and quieted myself as a child that is weaned of his mother. My soul is even as a weaned child. Let Israel hope in the Lord from henceforth and forever. Now, would you take your pen and underline some things? Would you underline the phrase, my heart is not haughty? And then after that, nor mine eyes lofty. Would you underline the entire verse 2? I behaved and quieted myself as a child that is weaned of his mother. And would you notice the latter part of that? That's the title of our message he said, my soul is even as a weaned child. And I want to talk to you tonight, preach to you this evening about the soul of a weaned child. Now, if you'll listen with an open heart, if you'll listen with an open heart, it will help your spiritual life. You'll grow. And I prayed for weeks, just going to having gone through these psalms, I prayed for weeks 
many weeks ahead of this for God's wisdom and help about this particular path. And I don't think I'm going to cover everything that needs to be said, but, I, God, but God's going to lead me to say some things tonight, I believe, that will help us. And you pray for me tonight that my, my head will be a little bit clearer this because it's not right now. I've got my allergies or my head feels like a water balloon right now. But you pray for me tonight that I'll just, my, my thoughts will be clear and that uh, what is said tonight will be glorifying to God and edifying to the saints of God. Father, bless your word this evening, using our lives. Thank you. We have the eternal, endless, forever word of God that liveth and abideth forever. And tonight, Lord, we come with hungry hearts and souls to seek you out. The Bible says, blessed are they that hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. And God, we need that kind of a filling tonight. We get filled with so much junk, and we need to just wean ourselves off of that. And to understand this evening what it means to have the soul of a weaned child. Father, would you give us understanding? Would you help us not to make it complicated? Would you help us to be tenderhearted and, uh, and receiving of the, of the things of God to help us in our lives? Purify us and sanctify us from thy word, through thy word. Uh, Jesus prayed, sanctify them through thy word. Thy word is truth. And uh, God, we pray that, Lord, this evening, that when it's all said and done for, you'll get the glory as we grow in Christ. Well, thank you for this in Jesus' name. And all of God's people say, amen. Maybe seated. Child development is an amazing study. Sometimes when you've asked people, what are you studying or what are you doing in college, I, I'm amazed. Some people say, I'm, I'm, I'm studying child development. I've always wondered, where, is there any money in that? Can you make a living in doing something like that, you know? But uh, getting a little bit older and now being a grandfather, uh, I, look at, I look at child development a little bit differently than I did when I was a parent, you know. Uh, as a parent, we want our children to grow up fast, amen. We want them to grow up fast. You, you, you want them to get off the bottle and, and to feed themselves. Uh, you, want them, you want them to get off the diapers and you want them to be able to go to the restroom on their own. Uh, you want them to dress themselves. You want them to learn how to bathe and brush their teeth and groom themselves. Uh, we want them to learn the rules of safety and precautions such as obeying signals and crossing the street and not talking to strangers. And, and on the other end, we, don't, we want them to be careful strangers, but on the other hand, we want them to be friendly and congenial and <coughs> respectful of older people. We don't want them to wander out of sight. Uh, we want them to learn how to study. We want them to mature and learn to be responsible without the attitude. Amen? I mean, as parents, we want those kind of things. On the other hand, as a grandparent, as a grandfather, I kind of feel like they grow up too fast. They look a little Evie, and she's growing up too fast. Every week she, they come by the house, and I'm thinking, man, she's growing another inch, and her cognitive ability is expanding, and we see all these differences there. And I'll be honest with you, as a grandfather, I want to hold and cherish the growing up moments. I don't want her to grow old. Amen? I don't want her to get older. In fact, I'm even even thinking right now, I'm not going to even let her parents marry her off. I'm going to make that decision. Amen? I mean, that's how I feel about things right now. Amen? Uh, we enjoy the baby talk and the speech development. Uh, we enjoy thank God for cell phones. You can take all these movies and pictures and things like that and cherish those moments and replay them. Those are wonderful things. And you know, th those are good things. But there comes a time there comes a time when a child has to be weaned. A child has to learn growing up. A child has to learn maturing. There are things all of us as we develop up, we have to learn the hard way. And if you're not weaned, those hard things are very difficult to learn. For instance, we learn the hard way that life has disappointments. We learn the hard way that there are consequences for disobeying the rules and the laws. We learn the hard way that we can be lied to, we can be fooled, and we can be deceived. We learn the hard way that real work is hard work. We learn that it takes hard work to get things that are monumental to be done. How many understand today, Heritage Baptist Church didn't come here because 
because it was a wish. It took hard work for us to get here 20 years later. It took hard work to get these buildings up, get the seats arranged. I'm so thankful for, so I don't know how many men today, but I'm thankful for men that took time out of their schedule for just a few minutes after the end of the service to, help, to get those chairs out of the main auditorium so we can get the main auditorium ready for the Thanksgiving banquet. But that took hard work. We learned that it takes hard work to get things done. We learned the hard way that stress, anxiety, and worry are part of everyday life. David said here in Psalms chapter 30, 131, verse 2, my soul is even as a weaned child. Charles Spurgeon had this to say about Psalms 131. He said it is one of the shortest psalms to read, but one of the longest to learn. I thought that was interesting. It is one of the shortest psalms to read, but one of the longest to learn. We are in step number 12. We are step, we're three steps away from getting to the top of the temple before the priest would enter in. He is laboriously and with much effort gone from one step to the other. He has recited one psalm to the other. He started, starts with Psalms 120. Then he goes to 121. Then he goes to 122. Then he goes to 123. Then he goes to 124. Then he goes to 125. And he's climbing higher to 126. And he's climbing higher to 127. He's climbing higher to 128. He's climbing higher to 129. He's climbing higher to 130. And now he stands on the step of 131 and he recites the psalm, Lord, my heart is not haughty, nor my eyes lofty, neither do do I exercise myself in great matters or things too high for me? Now you notice this psalm. It says it's a psalm of degrees of David. This is one of the psalms that David wrote. This is a Davidic psalm. It's important for us to distinguish the Davidic psalms from the psalms of Asaph or the post-exile psalm. This is a psalm of David. In studying the context of all of this, I believe that David wrote this psalm at the time or the conclusion of the Absalom revolt. I believe he wrote it at that time, and you'll see that in just a moment tonight. I believe he wrote it during that time because those learning experiences, he captured those moments, he wrote it down so that we could benefit from all these things. And we'll see this as it unfolds in verses 1 to 3. It's a Davidic psalm. It was a psalm, you might want to write this down. It is a psalm that David wrote when he was under a lot of stress. How many have stress in your life right now? You're a bunch of liars. You have stress in your life, okay? Brother Dan, you got stress in your life, amen, okay? Everyone's got stress in their life, okay? You're going to have stress in your life. David wrote this psalm when he was under a lot of stress. And as he's there, he talks to us about this evening, about when we're anxious and under a lot of stress, the importance of having the soul of a weaned child. And I'm going to give you three simple but very profound thoughts. Three very simple but profound thoughts. Please write these down. Number one, we see a personal humility. Notice in verse 1, we see a personal humility. Lord, my heart is not haughty, nor mine eyes lofty, neither do I exercise myself in great matters or in things too high for me. David is hurting and carrying a heavy heart. When news came to David of Absalom's death, how Joab took the darts and thrust him through as he hung there suspended between earth and heaven with his hair stuck in the limbs of a tree, David was heartbroken to hear that, that, that Absalom was killed. He was emotionally shattered in pieces. I want you to take your Bible with me for a minute. It's not in your notes. And I want you to turn to me in 2 Samuel and keep your finger there because I'm going to come back to that. And I want you to understand with me the depths of the, of the stress and the anxiety that David was in. I want you to go with me. 2 Samuel tonight, and go to 2 Samuel 18 for just a moment, and as we see 2 Samuel 18, we're going to see in chapter 19 how this all is unfolding, and somewhere in the midst between, I believe, chapters 19 and 21, that's when David wrote this psalm, Psalms 131. Absalom is killed, word comes back to David about this matter, 
And in 2 Samuel 18, you notice this, it says in verse, let's see, uh, let me find it here. In chapter 18, it says uh, in verse 32, and the king said unto Cushi, is the young man Absalom saved? Now in his heart of hearts, his heart was beating very fast. And he asked Cushi, he says, now I'm, I'm hoping my son is doing okay. I'm, so, I'm hoping he's alive. And you got to remember, Absalom turned his back on David. He did very terrible things, but David still had a heart of mercy. He still was a father who loved his son. And he said, he said is Absalom the young man saved? And Cushi answered, the enemies of my lord the king and all that rise against thee to do thee hurt be as that young man is. And when he said those words, the darts that went through Absalom's heart, David could feel those same darts thrusting to his heart. Now I'm going to tell you something tonight. When your children get hurt, when your family gets hurt, when your, father, when, your, when, your mother, when your wife gets hurt or your husband gets hurt, nobody understands what, goes, what gets thrust through you as you do. You just don't understand that. And sometimes, sometimes we will look at somebody else who's going through um, maybe some trial or difficulty and we, we, and we kind of just don't really get, grasp it. But when they're hurt, they feel like darts have been thrust through them. And this is how David felt. And you'll notice verse 33, notice the stress the worry, the anxiety, the heartache that David was going through. And the king was much moved. And he went up to the chamber over the gate and he wept. I want you to understand, David needed to go into seclusion. David wanted to get away from people. He didn't want his wives around him. He didn't want any of his children around him. He didn't want his close associates around him. He went away, the Bible says. David was moved. He went up to the chamber over the gate. And bear in mind, he's not back in Jerusalem yet. He's not in Jerusalem. Because later on, they said, King, you need to come back to the city or we're going to be in serious trouble. He was at the outskirts there and he moved himself towards the gate and the bible says he wept and as he went thus he said oh my son absalom my son my son absalom would god i had died for thee oh absalom my son my son i want you to think with me for just a minute and grasp in your heart the pathos i want you to grasp in your heart the grief i want you to grasp your heart the weeping i want you to grasp your heart the heartache and the sorrow a father was feeling for his son i almost imagine it was just like when he penned psalms 22 and he saw penned down those prophetic words that our, our lord say our lord jesus Christ would say later on, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? I mean, David was perhaps at the lowest point of his life. He was at the pit of his life, the darkest moments and the darkest clouds over his life because he thought, if there's any way I could salvage Absalom, if there's any way I could reverse all this and rewind this, I would die for my son. Instead of my son dying for me, instead of my son dying for his sins, I'd rather die for my son. Listen, young people, I don't care who you are. If you're a child here today, you don't understand. If you've got a mother and you've got a father that loves you and you've got a mother and father that lives for Jesus Christ and reads their Bibles and pray. I want you to know something. When you get away from God, when you're not living for the Lord, sometimes your parents will feel like this. They'll feel like David. I wish to God it was me that could die instead of you. You don't understand the heartache and you don't understand the valley a mother and father go through when a child is going away from God. And we just float along in our lives and do our thing. But David understood that. David understood. He said, my son is gone. If I could rewind the time and go back to history. I would die for my son. David is filled with a lot of stress. You get to chapter 19, and I don't have time to get into it, but I want you to notice this. David is at a place at a complete loss. He's at a place of complete loss. And David was at a place, number, watch this now. Number one, David lost his descendant. 
He lost a descendant. He lost someone that was very important to him. He lost a descendant. Secondly, he lost his discernment. When you get to chapter 19, David is not concerned about getting back to the throne. He lost all sense of discernment. The, the kingdom was in a state of almost chaos. It could have splintered and fractured and been in serious trouble. He lost his discernment. He lost his descendant. But I want you to notice this. David lost his desire. Have you ever been at the place in life? Have you ever been at the place of life where you lost your desire? You have no more desire to go back to what you did. You have no desire to serve. You have no desire to live. You have no desire to eat. You have no desire to sleep. When you get to that place in life, that is a very serious low place to be in life. And David's there because he's lost his descendant. He's lost his discernment and he's lost his desire. He's at a place where he just doesn't want to go on. David was hurting. He had a hurt that was painful. He had a hurt, notice in verse 1 and 2, that is altering him. You see, when we have hurt, it hurts us. When we have hurt, it's painful. But when we have hurt, it is also a time of altering us and changing us. And David was changing. David was humble. Notice verse 1 again. David was humble. Lord, my heart is not haughty, nor mine eyes lofty. Neither do I exercise myself in great matters or in things too high for me. What is humility? What is humility? In your heart of hearts, you sat down across the table with the Lord Jesus Christ. What do he say? Are you humble? How does he examine our humility? Do we, can we say at a low point of our life, like David, my heart is not haughty, nor my eyes lofty, neither do I exercise myself in great matters? Let me give you some thoughts this evening. Humility is when we go from the top down to the bottom. Humility is when we're brought to a lowly place in life. Humility is when we accept we are nobody. Humility is when instead of having the best seat, we take the worst seat. Go with me to Luke chapter 14. I was going to quote it. I want you to read it with me tonight because I think it's important we read the word of God so we can understand the perspective God's coming from. I want you to go to Luke 14, and Jesus gives, some, gives us some understanding about that. He talks about these Pharisees who came, about a pair about these Pharisees who came to a room. And he said in verse 8, Luke 14, 8, say amen if you're there. He said, when thou art bidden of any man to a wedding, sit not down in the highest room, lest a more honorable man than thou be bidden of him. And he that bade thee, and him come and say to thee, Give this man place, and thou begin with shame to take the lowest room. But when thou art bidden, go and sit down in the lowest room, that when he that bade thee cometh, he may send to thee, Friend, go up higher, then shalt thou have worship in the presence of them that sit at meat with thee. He's talking this parable because these, these Pharisees, if you read the preceding verses, these Pharisees were coming for this dinner, and they're all taking the closest seats. They all want to kind of take the seat at the top and try to figure out who's number one. Years ago, I had a, I had a men's discipleship class, and it was a great class of men. And uh, one of the men that came in you, would, always be, would always make sure he was the first one there, and he wanted to take the best seat in my office. He wanted to take the most comfortable seat, and he, you could tell he was really comfortable there. And I think if you, you'd have to, it would take probably seven men to pry his hands off the chair because he loved sitting there. And uh, it was okay. Nobody thought, nobody was against him. We just had a great time together. Together, but I thought it was kind of interesting. I observed that every time we had discipleship, why does he always zero in on that? Well, I found out later on that same man got a little bit upset with me because he said, I want you to let me preach in the pulpit. And I said, uh, I said, pardon me? And he said, I want you to let me preach in the pulpit. He says, I think God's called me to preach. You need to let me preach in the pulpit. And, uh, you know, I, I had a few things I wanted to say. And I said, well, sir, you know, let, let me just pray about what God wants to do. Well, it wasn't long that he got disgruntled with things and, and he just got, guess what? He wouldn't talk to me, he avoided me. I had come into church, he'd avoid me. I'd come into church, he'd avoid me. He'd go around the other side there and 
lo and behold, not long after that, they left the church. And I tried to appeal to them, went after them. I had some of our discipleship leaders go after them. They would not respond to us. And then he got back to me one day and just said something like this to me, which was very hurtful. He said, I just want you to know we're at another independent Baptist church. And I just want you to know I'm at a church where, where, where the preaching is convicting. I said, okay, that's fine. That's fine. Praise the Lord for that. Amen. You know, thank you. at least you're getting preaching. Amen. And at least you're an independent Baptist church. But I'm going to tell you something. Uh, the beginning, beginning of that is what seat are you trying to sit in? And that's what Jesus is trying to talk about here in Luke chapter 14. These men were trying to get the best seat. Notice how Jesus concluded that. He used that example something that was very colorful, something very real in their mind. Because those men that he's talking to, because, because he's dealing with Pharisees here, the religious leaders in chapter 14, those men wanted the best seats in the house, and they didn't want to take the back seat. And Jesus said, listen, you, listen don't, take, don't go after the best seats. Don't show your pride by taking the best seats, because you know what's going to happen? Someone higher than you is going to ask you to give your seat up to somebody else, and you're going to feel very lowly going to the back. It's better you take the back seat, you take the most lowly seat, the most humble seat, and therefore, when that man calls you up, he's going to ask you to sit there. Now, notice what Jesus says. He brings it together in verse 11, so they understand it. Notice it. For whosoever exalted himself shall be abased, and he that humbled himself shall be exalted. Humility. Humility is when we gladly accept and receive what we are given, especially if it is less than what we expected. Humility is when we gladly accept and receive whatever we are given, especially when it is less than what we expected. Humility is saying you are sorry. Humility is getting things right even if you're not at fault. Hey, listen, humility is Jesus reconciling the world unto himself. Humility is Jesus when he was reviled, he reviled not again. When he suffered, he threatened not, but committed himself to him that judges righteously. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 22 and 23. I understand this tonight. Humility is asking permission and not forging ahead in self-will. Humility is when we're told no, we accept this answer with grace. Let me tell you something. The preacher's for the most part that I have come preach in this pulpit here are men that I have measured and studied and I've kind of vetted them to find out where these men are at. I tell you what I preach about just about every preacher that comes here because they have a servant's heart. They come here and they'll ask one question. What do you want me to do, pastor? How am I supposed to serve you? What do you want me to do? A guy that comes in here and starts looking things up and starts talking about, starts, down, starts talking down to the church and things like that, that guy's not going to be in this pulpit very long. In fact, he won't even be in this pulpit here. I look for men who've got that heart. Some of the best servants are pastors who are willing to serve and give their best for Jesus. Humility is asking permission and not forging ahead in self-will. Listen, humility is when we are told no, we accept this answer with grace. Did you understand in church, not everything is a yes? Not everything is, you're going to get approval. And sometimes there's a no, there's a reason behind it. We don't need to ask why. We just need to understand we must with humility accept it with grace. Humility is when we are insulted, we receive it with grace and hold our tongue. Humility is willingness to do the lowly and dirty work. Go with me to Nehemiah chapter 3. In Nehemiah chapter 3, please turn there if you would, please. I want you to look at some scriptures tonight, and you might want to underline some of these things. In Nehemiah chapter 3, this is one of my favorite chapters in the Bible, though you might not think so. There's just a lot of, a lot of good Bible there. But in Nehemiah chapter 3, the people said they strengthened their hands for this good work. And so around a three-mile three mile perimeter of the, of, the, of the walls, where the walls of Jerusalem need to be built up, uh, member, me, the members of the, uh, the Jerusalem community got together, all the Jews got together, and men were leading their households. They took their places there. And the Bible, one of the, one of the key verses, key thoughts, 
thoughts in this verse. It says, in this passage of scripture, it says, next unto him, and next unto him, and next unto him. And people were assembled there to build around the work of God. But notice verse 5. It says, and next unto them, Nehemiah 3, 5. And next unto them, the Tekoites repaired, but their nobles, their leaders, their important ones, their nobles put not their necks to the work of their Lord. Hey, listen, humility is saying, just because I have a title does not mean that that, that, that excludes me from service, that we ought to get involved. Hey, we need some men tonight, this coming Saturday, this coming Saturday and Sunday. We need some men that will be willing to roll up their sleeves. I don't care who you are. We need some men to be willing to roll up their sleeves, go inside that kitchen and clean the dishes and wash the dishes from the moment we start getting ready for the banquet to the end of the banquet. We need some men who will roll up their sleeves and change their pants and get a broom and sweep this room later on, on Sunday night. We need some men who will get, to get, a, get, a, get, a, get a mop and do it. By the way, I'm just thankful tonight for the men who serve as deacons who roll up their sleeves and get involved and do that. But listen, a lot of us need to do the work of a deacon, okay? A lot of us need to get involved and do some of that. And thank God for ladies who come here, and they'll take a dust. They'll say, Pastor, what, you, what do you need us to do? I said, well, would you get a duster and start dusting some areas that have been neglected? And would you get a vacuum cleaner and help me vacuum some areas there? And would you come and do some things like that? I mean, the Bible says here that these nobles, they put not their necks to the work. And may God help us tonight. When we get to that level, we've gotten, we've gotten past the place where God wants us to be. Listen to this. Humility is when we have a complete sense of unworthiness. In Luke chapter 7, we have the story of this centurion, a Roman, a Gentile, who had his servant he loved very much. And, he, and his servant, the Bible says, was dying. He was at the point of death. And he heard that Jesus was, had come into town. He had ne never met Jesus. He had no idea what Jesus looked like. But this man was held in good favor with the elders of the Jews. This man had built them a synagogue. He, took, he loved the Jewish people. He just said, you know, I believe what you believe. And, and that he said, and he helped them build their synagogue. That was a great thing. And he went to the elders of the Jews. He said, would you do me a favor? He said, I'm a Gentile. I'm a Roman. Would you go to this man by the name of Jesus? Would you go to this, 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 this teacher? Would you go to him, this rabbi? And would you ask him if he would come here to help my son? And so they went and told him those things. But he also told them this. He says, you tell that rabbi. Tell him that I'm not worthy to come unto him. Tell them I'm not worthy that he should come under my roof. He said, I'm a sinful man. He said, would you just tell him this? Just speak the word and I believe my, my, my servant will be healed. I mean, this man was at a place of humility. To tell someone, I'm not worthy you should come under my roof means basically, I, I am of such of a character, I'm of such of esteem, I'm of such of a background, I, I just feel like I, I would dishonor you for coming here. And Jesus saw that man's faith and that man's humility. Humility is not thinking of myself at all. Now go back to Psalms 131 is with all those thoughts in mind about humility and let's look at David's personal humility. We see David's personal humility. Write this down. Number one, David's humility involves self-reduction. Self-reduction. Lord, my heart is not haughty, nor mine eyes lofty. Would you notice this? David had an attitude change. David had an attitude change. That's not how he was a few, a few weeks before that. That's not how he was a few years before that. He was haughty and his eyes were lofty. He looked up. He had all these great ideas and thoughts, but his heart was haughty. There was a self-reduction. Humility begins in our spirit. He died to pride. He saw his pride as God sees it. God sees our sin as pride. Pride is an abomination before God. God hates pride. Can I hear an amen on that? God hates pride. He hates our pride. It stinks in his nostrils. He saw it as an abomination before God. Humility affects our sight. 
He says, my eyes are not lofty. Instead of looking up and thinking you something, instead of looking at people with a lofty, lofty spirit, he looked down and realized he was nobody compared to them. In fact, I even think in those moments of time, David was even wondering, God, why am I king? Why am I a leader? I don't deserve to be here. Look how I failed. There was self-reduction. But notice, secondly, what you notice in the latter part of verse 1, there was self-removal. There was self-removal. He said, neither do I exercise myself in great matters or in things too high for me. Now, the first thing we see in self-reduction, there is an attitude change. Would you notice this? And this is hard, especially for men. The second thing we see about David in this self-reduction, this self-removal, there is an ambition change. There is an ambition change. He said, neither do I exercise myself in great matters. He said, I am, I'm, not, I'm not overreaching anymore. Neither do I exercise myself in great matters or in things too high for me. He stopped overreaching. Humility affects the success syndrome. He stopped thinking about how to expand his kingdom. He stopped thinking about how many people were serving him and started thinking about how many people should I be serving? That's a great thought, amen? He started thinking about, about this. He said, he started thinking about, about getting focused on giving and not getting. He stopped exercising authority and instead exercised abasement. He says, I am not exercising myself in great matters or in things too high for me. Now, I wrote some things. I want you to write this down. There are four critical elements involving humility. Four critical elements involving humility. Number one, humility must be elected. Now, what does that mean? Humility must be voluntary. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God. It must be elected. You must volunteer to be humble. You must humble yourself. You know, God either is going to humble you or you're going to humble yourselves. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God. Listen, God... God bringeth down the proud, does he not? Brings, he brings down the pride. And God loves those who are humble. Hum, humility must be elected. Secondly, humility must be effacing. Effacing means where well, we abase ourselves. We take the back seat. We take the lowest thing. When, if it's something that we didn't expect, we just receive it with graciousness. We're gracious about those things. We don't let insults hurt us. We don't let those things hurt us. We are effacing. And then thirdly, humility must be earnest. Humility must be sincere. It must be genuine. It must be real. It must be earnest in what we do. But notice this. It must be elective. It must be effacing. It must be earnest. Listen, humility is essential. Did you know this tonight? You cannot go forward. I cannot go forward. This church cannot go forward if humility is not present in our life. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time. We sit there gloating, thinking we've done it, we took God out of it. We have to remember, we need to give God the credit and God the glory. I like what Andrew Murray said. Would you listen to this? Pride must die in you or nothing of heaven can live in you. That's a great thought. Pride must die in you or nothing in heaven can live in you. Number one, we see a personal humility. But you notice in verse 2, a second thing. We're working, going somewhere now. We see a personal humility. Notice number two, we see a peaceful hush. A peaceful hush. David said, surely I have behaved and quieted myself as a child that is weaned of his mother. My soul is even as a weaned child. Now the key thought here is understanding where David's at. Remember I said David lost his descendants. David lost his discernment. David lost his desire. David is weeping. David is crying. David is stressed out. David is filled with anxiety. And the key thoughts here is he says, I have behaved and quieted myself as a weaned child. He said, I've attained this place that it couldn't come by any other way of a peaceful hush in my life. Now, when you consider that this evening, 
David is using the analogy of a weaned child, a child weaned from his mother to describe an important stage of our Christian life and spiritual maturity. Now, we all know weaning is a part of child development. Weaning is the time when a baby and child is, is, is taken from nursing for nourishment to the place where it's dependent upon nursing is removed and is now at the place where it can feed itself and get used to solid. Basically, it goes from liquids to solids. You're trying to get the people, the child weaned off of being dependent upon the mother. Now, there's something about about nursing that is very, very precious to a child. There's closeness, there's confidence, there's security, there's safety. A child loves to be nursed by its mother. There's something about that bonding between the mother and the child that's very wonderful. Only a mother and a child and, and uh, newborn parents can really understand it. But there comes a time after the child gets to the fourth month and fifth month and sixth month that you realize the child is starting to develop, teeth are starting to grow, the palate of the child is changing, the digestive tract is changing, and it's important that the parents realize there comes a time that they're going to wean the child. Some of the things parents will do, they'll put different... Th- different times of foods to get the child used to different tastes other than milk and they'll get the child to change and they're starting that winning process and then they're starting to move the child onto things that are easily digestible and easy to eat and they move the child from from liquids to solids if you would to be weaned is to have something removed from your life which you thought you couldn't live without because for a baby they don't like to be weaned babies like to be nursed they they feel like as far as they're concerned in their immature state they can't live without weaning and they but as a parent you know the best thing for that child is to wean that child off of of that. And so just as it's important for a child to be physically weaned, it's very important as believers we are spiritually weaned. Now listen to this. Many have grown without growing up. Many Many become men without maturing. Weaning is traumatic for a child. Children, little babies do not like weaning. It is something it looks forward to, something it looked forward to now has been taken away once the weaning process starts. Something it wanted to hold on to has been removed. The child becomes anxious. The child becomes stressed. The child, some children, they whine and they cry. They throw temper tantrums. They won't stop being a baby. They refuse to eat the solid food. In fact, they spit it out because they want to be nourished with mother's milk. Milk. A weaned child is stressed out. A weaned child has, it feels like his life is upside down. But we know what a triumphant moment when a child accepts weaning. And every mother loves it when the child accepts weaning, when the child starts adapting to solid food and the child loves to eat the solid food and gets under that routine and they love it when the child goes from 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 being a, a, a nurse to where they can hold a bottle and then to a zippy cup and then they can go to their their own drinking there what a wonderful time when a child accepts weaning it discovers that solids are much more preferred than over liquids it discovers that meat is preferred over milk it discovers that it is able to take responsibility for feeding himself and choosing the right food to eat it discovers that it does not need to whine and cry when stress comes into its life. It discovers that whining doesn't help anyone. David said, surely... I have behaved myself and quieted myself as a child that is weaned of his mother. Hey, this is a very colorful illustration, a very understandable image that, that David is painting in the picture of everyone he's writing to. And something mothers, especially in this room, can identify with. He's saying, surely my soul, I have behaved myself and quieted myself as a child that is weaned of his mother. My soul is even as a weaned child. He said here, he made, in other words, he made and became silent himself. The word behave means to make. In other words, it's to force himself. He forced himself to accept that he needed to be as a weaned child. He needed to get to the place where he's crying and he's wailing and he's grieving.
grieving and he's whining and he's stressed out and he's complaining and he's groaning to where he got to a place where he was silent and learned to understand that he had to be in this place of his spiritual life where he could be silent and rest on the Lord. Can I give you some steps in weaning? Write this down, please. There are three steps in weaning and I want to get right down to the context of the spiritual application because David attained the place where he said his soul is a weaned child. Now, when I leave tonight, you leave tonight, I want us this evening to have the soul of a weaned child. I prayed for that these last few weeks. I prayed that God would help you and I to have the soul of a weaned child. This is important. David made a spiritual, uh, uh, he made a spiritual attainment when he said, my soul is as a weaned child. He's no longer stressed when he writes it. He's no longer anxious when he writes it. He's no longer whining. He's no longer crying. He's no longer without discernment. He's no longer kind of wandering out there wondering what to do. He's attained this mark, a spirit, this marker of spiritual maturity that is so critical for every spiritual life. And I want you to notice there are three important steps in weaning. Number one, there must be abandonment. Number one, there must be abandonment. Now, we must be weaned from infant practices. That was what, what God's word is telling us. We must be weaned from infant practices, okay? Now, write some things down. I want you to think about, in fact, just look up here tonight. I want to say something. We need to stop whining. We need to stop clinging. We need to stop crying. We need to stop making and exaggerating our circumstances are worse than they really are. Just some people have a way with words. They exaggerate things and make it worse than it really is. We need to stop. We need to stop always being fearful. We need to stop being over-possessive. We need to stop trying to outgain another person. We need to stop being sad and depressed when you do not get your way. We need to stop being a do-little or do-nothing Christian and do something much for Jesus Christ. Amen? Because a whining child doesn't do anything. They just stand there and go, oh, I don't have my milk anymore. Oh, Mommy won't help me. And they just sit there and they whine and they cry and they don't change. And you come back the next day, they're still whining and they're crying and they haven't changed. We need to mature beyond that. We need to stop being a do-little Christian. We need to stop being babies. Listen, baby Christians do the minimal when it comes to church. Baby Christians do the minimal in church. Baby Christians walk around with anger and a frown on their face because they're stressed out. Baby Christians are selective in their hearing and their attitude. They hear what they want to hear. They do what they want to do. Baby Christians ignore the warnings and get themselves in trouble. Baby Christians exasperate the one that is leading them. Listen, baby Christians have to be taught what to say and what to do. For instance, they have to be told to be respectful. They have to be told to stop being rude. They have to be told to say sorry. They have to be told to say thank you. They have to be told that they're disruptive. They have to be told to put away their toys. Listen, men should stop gaming, and ladies need to stop being little princesses. Amen. We just have to understand that's part of growing up. They have to be told that they should be in church. They have to be told to stop spending too much time out of church. They have to be told to stop eating unhealthy food. In other words, instead of eating the precious milk of God's word, instead of eating the meat of God's word, they're eating junk food and not, then they're wondering why they're suffering spiritually. They have to be told that to stop being selfish and self-centered. When Adam and Eve were in the garden, they were like babies. God had to go look for them. They were like babies because you know what they did? They knew they did wrong, and they were ashamed, and they were embarrassed. And so they went and got some leaves, and they covered themselves up. They did an improper job of covering themselves up. Can I tell you something tonight? When you lie, you can never cover up a lie. When you're living in sin, you can never cover your sin. You never can cover everything up because only one thing can cover your sins, and that's the blood of God's Son, Jesus Christ. Amen? And so you understand tonight... 
They thought they could cover themselves up, and they went into hiding. And you know what? God had to go looking for two adult babies. He said, where art thou? Where art thou? That's what we do. We have to go looking for spiritual babies. Where are you? How come you weren't in church? How come you weren't in Sunday school? How come you weren't at the club meeting? How come you weren't at the evangelistic service? How come you weren't there? Well, you know, I had this and I had that, and I felt sad today, and I couldn't get up because it was time change. I got an extra hour of sleep, but I felt like I needed two more hours, you know. I mean, they have all these excuses why they can't do things. I'm saying today, they avoid authority in life because they know they've done wrong. The bottom line is, baby Christians need to be weaned. There's a second step. You didn't, you didn't get to that very well, so I think there's a lot of weaning we've got to do. There's abandonment. Number two, there must be acceptance. Listen to this. A weaned child, a weaned baby goes from anxiety to acceptance. They go from stress to steadfastness. They go from tantrums to trust. They go from fear to faith. A weaned baby goes from the milk to the meat. Go with me to Hebrews chapter 5 and look at verses 12 to 14. And what great instruction Paul gives us here about acceptance of our, of our spiritual lives. Now remember, I spoke about this a little bit this morning when I was speaking from Hebrews 12, that Paul was writing, I believe he was the writer, everything, it has Paul's signature all over Hebrews. And it says some things he says there, especially in the last chapter. But he was writing to believers who were stunted in their spiritual growth. They hit a ceiling. They were immature. They didn't have great discernment. We'll see this here. And notice in Hebrews chapter 5, I'm going to read these verses to you. Listen very carefully as Paul writes this to them. He says, For when for the time you ought to be teachers, you have need that one teach you again, which be the first principles of the oracles of God, and are become such as have need of milk and not a strong meat. Now before I go to the next verse, think with me for a minute what Paul's saying here. He says, We ought to be at the place that spiritually... You have the mindset and the heart of a teacher. Now, he wasn't, say, he wasn't saying that every one of them should be teachers in the church. He wasn't saying that. But what he was saying, that they needed to be at the place of their Christian life. They were grounded enough that they could give an explanation about the doctrines of Scripture. They could, they, they could, they could articulate enough in, in just simple language. They knew they were saved and what they believed about the Holy Spirit and what they believed about, about the Bible and what they believed about God and what they believed about sin. He says the time should be that you should be teachers, but you are in need of someone teaching you again. You're in need of someone teaching the very first principles of the oracles of God. In other words, he's saying, you need to go back to a new converse class again. You need to learn all over again what it means to have assurance of salvation. You need to learn what heaven's all about. And uh, a lot of Christians don't even know how to describe heaven. They really don't know what's going to go on in heaven, how big heaven's going to be, and what we do in heaven. I heard one person say, well, you know, what are we going to do in heaven? I said, man, we're going to worship and praise God. And here's what they said. They said, well, that's going to be boring. I said, you're not saved. That's not going to be boring, man. I'd love to have a song service perpetually, man. I'd like to hear preaching perpetually. And by the way, it's going to be better than preaching. Better than that because we're with the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, amen. We're with the angelic bodies. I mean, you think you've been in some great services? There'll be no service compared to what we're going to do in heaven. It's going to be glory, amen. That's the only thing you can say. It's going to be glory there. But they go to the place. Notice he says here, you are the place. You're in need that one teach you again. And he says you are become. And so in other words, they morphed backwards, they went backwards. You were become such as have need of milk and not a strong meat. He says, in other words, you can't take the meat of God's word. 
This message I'm preaching right now, there's no way I could preach it to a bunch of sixth graders because they need the milk of the word. In fact, Brother AJ, I couldn't even preach this to a bunch of eighth graders, right, or even 12th graders because they are in need of the, milk of the, the meat of the word. They have to receive the milk of the word. They have to receive the simple, understandable things of the word of God. Notice verse 13. For everyone that uses milk, listen to this, everyone that uses milk is unskillful in the word of righteousness. Now, let me tell you something tonight. When they are only on the milk of the word, you don't give them a promotion. So, well, let me give you the Bible and verse, and you get up there and give a devotion. They are unskillful in the word of righteousness. You don't have them give a devotion. You don't have them stand up and try to articulate the word of God. They're going to make a mess out of themselves and make a mess out of the word of God. He says, for everyone here, he says, for everyone that, is, that uses milk is unskillful in the word of righteousness, for he is a baby. Then he gets in verse 14, but strong meat belongs to them that are of full age, even those who by reason of use have their senses to, uh, exercised to discern both good and evil. And here's what he's saying. When you are weaned, you're able to discern right from wrong. You know the butter and the honey and the evil from the good. He says here, you're able to discern right from wrong. Now here's the main thought I want to give you. A weaned soul is one that accepts the meat for the milk. A weaned soul is one that accepts the meat for the milk. Now listen, this is a good part here. I want you to think about the meat of some things we need to receive. I want you to think with me tonight of some meaty things we need to get from the Christian life. Some meaty things we need to get out of the Word of God. If you miss this tonight, you're not going to get a blessing. I want you to get this tonight. Notice, number one, there's the meat of waiting. The meat of waiting, okay? Trials teach us to wait. Babies cry and make everyone tense. Trials teach us to wait, to wait on God. Did you ever notice when you go through a trial, God never tells you when it's going to be over? It's just unending. It just continues on. And some of us in this room, you're, you're, we're, in, we're in trials that are just probably going to keep stay with us for the rest of our life. There's the meat of waiting. Listen, <clears throat> babies don't understand it, but someone who's growing in the faith, they learn the meat of waiting. And that's the secondly, there's the meat of his word. Do you know when you get in the word of God and you get the, this discernment that he talks about in verse 14, your senses exercise to discern both good and evil. You know what God does for you? He gives you everything that Proverbs chapter 1 to 31 talks about, this matter of wisdom. You know what wisdom is? Number one, wisdom is hindsight. Number two, wisdom is insight. Number three, wisdom is foresight. It helps you to look back. It, looks, it helps you look right now, introspectively, where you're at. It gives you insight of things. It helps you look ahead. The prudent man foreseeth the evil, and he hideth himself. Hey, there's the meat of his waiting. There's the meat of his word. Here's the meat of his work. Jesus said, Jesus said, I must do the work of him that has sent me while his day, the night come. I must, my, my meat is due to the will of him that sent me. Listen to this. You do, in the meat of his work, you do more than others, and you're not afraid to labor day and night. You read through Thessalonians, some of the epistles, Paul talked about that. He said, I labor day and night. You do more than others. You're not afraid to labor day and night. You multitask two or more ministries well. There's the meat of waiting. There's the meat of his word. There's the meat of work. There's the meat of his witness. The meat of his witness, we get to John 15. That's fruit that remains. That you'll be able to bear much fruit and souls being saved. Hey, here's another one. There's the meat of God's will. Listen to this tonight. I'm going to give you a statement. If you're not doing his will, you're not in his will. If you're not doing his will, you're not in his will. Think about that for a minute. Because the Bible very clearly tells us what the will of God is. For instance, he says, tells us in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, and everything gives thanks for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. He says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, for this is the will of God, even your sanctification, that you should abstain from fornication. And it goes on and on and on. You read 1 Peter chapter 2 on the matter of submission, and he talks about this being the will of God for your life. I mean, we can go on and on and on. If you are not doing his will, you're not in his will. Jesus said, my me is to do the will of him that's 
sent me. Listen tonight, God's will is not giving you, you're giving you, you giving God your job descriptions you see fit. It is saying, not my will, but thine be done. And that's an important part of this. There's the meat of his will. And then tonight, would you notice, there's the meat of his worship. You enjoy true worship and engage in it often. You think of the tabernacle work, and the tabernacle work, it was a busy place. The priests were working, the Levites were working from sunup to sundown to even beyond that. They were lighting the, they were lighting the candelabras. They were making the sacrifices. On those great sacrificial days, there were lots of sacrifices being made. There was the meat of his worship. There's the acceptance. We accept the fact that when we go from the milk to the meat, we go from the liquids to the solids, we go from that place of, de- of, of, of dependence upon someone else where we can get, learn how to depend upon God, there is an acceptance we have. So we see there's an abandonment. There's an acceptance. But you notice this. Here's where we get back to verse 2. Notice there's the arrival. David said, surely I behaved and quieted myself as a child that is weaned of his mother. My soul is even as a weaned child. He said, I have made myself. That's what the word behave means. I have made myself and quieted myself. I have made myself calm and quiet. Hey, the best thing happens to a weaned child is learning to have self-control. Or may I say this tonight for every Christian, is learning to be under the Spirit's control. Not under, the, not under my spirit, but under the Holy Spirit. I've learned to calm and quiet myself. I'm not going to get overly exerted about things. No wonder that David could say, uh, could listen to God's word in Psalm 46 when he said, Be still and know that I am God. The weaning of childish attitudes, fears, and behaviors results in faith and complete trust in God. Now listen to some things about this. David said, I behaved and quieted myself as a weaned child. You know where he arrived at? A peaceful hush. He arrived at a place where great peace flooded his soul. He arrived at the place that everyone at some point in your life you want to have. You want to be at this place of a continuity, of a peaceful hush. There may be storms going on. There may be trials going on. And you may go from one fire to the other. But there's this peaceful hush that God puts in your soul. You can only attain that when you get weaned off of the things that are holding you back. And you get weaned off the fear. And you get weaned off the milk. And you go to the meat. And you get weaned off the liquids and get onto the solids and Accepting the fact that you're not depending on people, but you're depending on God. Listen to these verses tonight. (coughs) Psalms 119, verse 165. Great peace have they which love thy law, and nothing shall offend them. Listen to this. uh, Psalms, Isaiah 12, 2. Behold, God is my salvation. Notice this phrase. I will trust and not be afraid. Now, a lot of people like to use that verse over in Psalms 63, I think it is, where he says, what time I'm afraid, I will trust. And that's a good thing. We're afraid we trust. But you know what? A weaned soul, a weaned child says, I will trust and not be afraid. That's a, that's a weaned soul. It doesn't matter what the problem is. I will trust and not be afraid. You'll know that you, God has proven himself over and over again, and you can trust him. Psalms, Isaiah 12, 2. Notice Isaiah 26, 3. Thou will keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. Philippians 4, 6, and 7. Be careful for nothing, or be anxious for nothing. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God. And the peace of God, which passes all understanding, shall keep your heart and mind. Listen, a weaned soul, and this is where David got to. A weaned soul stops stressing out. It stops whining. It stops complaining. and arrives at the most desirable state. It has a peaceful hush over its soul. A ship was in a serious storm and in grave distress. All the passengers were alarmed and very fearful of their lives. One of the men finally, against all orders, decided to make his way to the top of the deck while the ship was going backwards and forwards and sideways and so forth there. And finally made his way. He wanted to go see the pilot of the ship. The pilot, the seaman, was at the post of his duty, 
carefully with all his strength, guiding the steering of the ship. He was looking out at the horizon, watching where he was going because the fate of everybody on the ship was in his control. And that, that, uh, that passenger went up, and he, as he got his way there, he's still a distance off, kind of from kind of where I'm at from Brother Anthony. And he looked there, and he looked, and the eyes of both these men locked onto each other. The passenger's eyes locked onto the, post, the, the seaman, and the seaman's eyes looked onto him. And the seaman saw the look of anxiety on that man's face and the fear, and he gave him a reassuring smile. He just smiled at him and winked at him. It's like saying, it's okay, sir. It's all under control. I'm okay. And that man, when he saw that reassuring smile on that man's face, he turned around, made his way back down to the bottom where all the passengers are. And they said, well, what happened? What happened? And listen to what he said. That man reported to all the passengers, I've seen the face of the pilot. And, uh, and he smiled and he said, all is well. And you know what? When you look in God's word and you read the promises of the Bible and you get the promises of God, the just man shall fall seven times and rise up again. You know what happens? We've seen the face of the pilot and we can keep on going. All is well. Amen. All is well because it's in our Father's hands. God is in control of those things. Listen, the greatest place to be in the Christian life, I'm thankful we get on fire for God and we get on fire for soul winning. We get on fire for praying and all those things. But the greatest place to be in your Christian life is this place of spiritual maturity where you can be at a place of a peaceful hutch. Listen, trials bring out the worst or the best in you. Uh, Charles, uh, Hudson Taylor went to a conference and he got with a bunch of preachers and some Christians and they were sitting at a large conference table and there was a glass of water that was there. It was filled to the brim and as he was listening to them, some of the men were talking about their problems, their difficulties and they were stressing out about things. Hudson Taylor, who was a very meek man, he took his fist and he hit the table really hard like that as he did so. It shook the table and the contents of the water spilled out on the table. Everyone saw them and was kind of wondering what's going on and Hudson Taylor said this. He said, brothers, that's exactly what happens with us. He says, sometimes God has to bring uh, God has to bring stress in our life, and when he brings the stress, what comes out of us determines what was inside of us. And I'm saying to you tonight, we must have the soul of a weaned child. We need to wean ourselves off of infant practices. We must wean ourselves off of being an infant maturity and grow in Jesus Christ and keep on climbing higher. We're on that 12th step trying to get the 15th step, and we need to keep going higher. We need to get to the top of the peak for Jesus Christ here. Notice one last thing we're done today. We see a personal humility. We see a peaceful hutch. What you notice this evening, we see a permeating hope. Now David's at this place where he's got this. He said, man, I was all stressed out. And I had to humble myself before God. And there's a peace that came over my soul. And I want you to go back with me to 2 Samuel because here in 2 Samuel, if we go back to 2 Samuel 18, David is crying. He's saying, oh, my son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom, what God had died for thee, oh, Absalom, my son, my son. But now we get to Psalms 131, and David's not like that anymore. David's got this peaceful hutch. And you have to notice now, David's not standing up as a wounded soldier. David's not standing up as a hurting father. David is standing up as a king, as a military leader. David's standing up before his people. He's standing up as a commander, as a father, as a husband, as a brother, as a son, as a child of God. And he's standing up and he makes this wonderful pronouncement to the people of God. He's standing before all of Israel. He's told all the priests to be around him. He's got all the Levites around him. He's got his own soldiers around him. And he makes his proclamation. He says, look at, he said, I prayed this prayer to God. Lord, my heart is not haughty, nor my eyes lofty. Neither do I exercise myself in great matters and things too high for me. But he said, surely, he said, I have behaved. I have made myself and quieted myself as a child that is weaned from his mother. And he gets up and with a great proclamation, 
with the lungs of a great boisterous preacher. He shouts out, let Israel hope in the Lord. He said, listen, I've discovered the way of gladness. I've discovered the way of peace. I've discovered how to have a hush over my soul. I've discovered how God can work in my heart and work through these circumstances. I've learned it's better to wean off of, to be a wean, have the soul of a weaned child than to be a crying baby. He said, I want you to know, Israel, and what I've attained, you can have it as well. You can attain it. And he said, let all Israel hope in the Lord. Listen, tonight, God doesn't want us to languish in the back scene somewhere, in the nursery somewhere, in a children's program somewhere. God wants us to get the soul of a weaned child and experience the hope that is in Jesus Christ, that you know everything's going to be better, that everything's going to be good, that you know God is in control, that you know that God loves you, that you know that God, faith in God will get you through that trial. Amen. I'm talking about today. He said, a permeating hope. He said, I don't want this to be just something that I've attained. I don't want it to be something that only I lived through. I want you to experience it, and you experience it, and you experience it. Let all Israel hope in the Lord, he said there. He said, there's hope for our country. There's hope for our families. There's hope in our trials. There's hope when you're stressed out. There's hope always. Look again. Let Israel hope in the Lord from henceforth and forever. Let's get out of the doldrums and discouragement and the darkness of the clouds. And let's, let's have the hope from now and forever. Amen. I mean, let's just go on hoping in God. And I'm not talking about, well, I hope this will happen. That's that anticipation that it can only get better because you're, you're saved and you belong to God. Amen. Because it only gets better there. All things work together for good to them that love God. To them who are the called according to his purpose. By the way, there's hope in the Lord. Where's your hope tonight? Your hope should be in Christ in you, the hope of glory. Listen to this wonderful verse, Romans 15, 13, then we're done. Now the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing that ye may abound in hope through the power of the Holy Spirit. That's good, amen? The God of hope. The God of hope. Church won't give you hope. Pastor can't give you hope. Your family can't give you hope. But there's the God of hope. The God of hope fill you with all joy and peace and believe me. Let me tell you a story and I'm done. During the Korean War in the 1950s, The North Koreans made some great advancements. They were trying to push communism in that country. They went after the countryside and took a lot of people captive and put them in concentration camps. There was a pastor there, a Korean pastor. His name was Pastor Im, I-M. Pastor Im got saved. He came under the influence at that time under a denominational program. He went through a Bible course. He loved the Bible course. He went through a Bible college training. He became a pastor of just a very simple country church there in, in, in Korea. During that Korean War, it was very tense for people that were there. I've been there at the DMZ, at the demilitarized zone. I've been there with pastors who together we put our arms around each other and prayed for God to open that DMZ that one day the gospel can get into there. And I've been with Korean pastors who have relatives that are still stuck in North Korea and they have no idea what's going on with them because they don't hear anything. 
This man, Pastor M, was working the fields. He was a farmer. He took care of himself by working the fields and things. The communists sent into his village and area, and before he knew anything, they just snatched him up and took him. I mean, they took him captive and made him a captive of war, and he had done nothing wrong. And, you know, the first thing in his mind, well, what about my wife and my children? They said, don't worry about your wife and children. His wife and children had no idea what happened to him, and he was concerned and burdened his heart. What about my wife and children? What did they do to them? And he was stuck in a concentration camp. 18 months went by, and he's languishing in this camp, and that's what the time when uh, General MacArthur came with the U.N. and U.S. forces. They came in, and they, they tried to topple, made some advances. They went to Pyongyang there, and they, 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 they toppled some things and tried to make advancements on that place. As they did so, they found this concentration camp where Pastor Im was in, and they, they, they immediately went in there and released these prisoners. But they really didn't take into account at that time who those prisoners were because as soon as they opened up the gates and let them out, these guys scattered everywhere. I mean, they just went everywhere trying to find their way around. Pastor Im, the first thing only on his mind for 18 months, he's only thinking about one thing. I've got to find my wife and I've got to find my children. And you've got to bear in mind for 18 months, the only thing he had when they thrust him into prison were the clothes he had on his back and they barely fed him. He was emaciated and very skinny and just, he was dirty and filthy. He didn't have, probably hadn't had a shower for 18 months and hardly ate anything. And Pastor M only could think about as he was shoeless and his clothes were tattered and he was dirty in his face and dirty in his body. He just thought one thing, I've got to get home and I've got to find my wife and I've got to find my children. And he started to make his way. He started going over a hill and the UN troops and U.S. troops were trying to look out there. They were trying to capture all the communists they could. And they saw this man screwing up the hill and he was running. And they thought, who is this guy that's running? He must be one of the communists because they had no idea who these people were. They just assumed anybody was running was the enemy or the communists. And so they chased after him. They captured Pastor M, but he couldn't speak. English and they, they couldn't speak Korean. And so once again, he just for moments there, he was free. And now this man is incarcerated once again. And they took him. And there was an island that they used. You can look it up. There was an island that they kept all these, these, these prisoners of war in. The UN put them on. It was called the island of Kojido. The island of Kojido was a concentration camp, if you would, or I should say a prison camp that they put all these communists into, or the so-called communists, and, and, and Pastor M once again is there. Now, Pastor M, he just had a, a glimmer of hope. He just had this light shine in his life. He thought, man, I'm going to be free, and I could go home to my wife and go home to my children. And now, once again, he's incarcerated, and he can't communicate with the Americans, and he doesn't know what's going on. And his world felt like it caved in. He felt like it shattered. And for just a moment in time, the, the devil was playing with his mind, and the devil was telling him, see, your God doesn't work, and see, your God doesn't doesn't help you, and see your God failed you, and see your God doesn't help there. And this pastor, this pastor was feeling at the darkest moment of his life, he's thinking, God, did you really bail out on me? There in the solitude darkness of that dirty, filthy prison, he kneeled in the corner somewhere, and he says, God, I know you love me. He said, God, would you show me what you want me to do out of this? What am I supposed to do with all this? How, am I, how do I make this something good? How do I make this something good? God started to work in his heart. He said, Pastor Him, I want you to find out if there are any other Christians who believe what you believe in this camp. He said, all I want you to do is you take a stand for me in that camp and just sing some songs. He found four, five, six, seven guys that all professed faith in Jesus Christ like he did. He got those men together. He says, hey, guys, we're going to do something. It's almost Christmas time. And I know we don't have a lot. I know you're scared like me. But here's what we're going to do. Let's just stand out here in the bitter cold and the rain, and let's sing Silent Night, Holy Night. They started singing Silent Night in Korean. And as they started singing, 
the guards' attention that night started to focus on those on those that little group of pastor that little that pastor and those little group of Christians singing "Silent Night, Holy Night." All is calm. All is bright. And they started wondering what is going on. They pointed their guns at these men and they're thinking, "What are they trying to do?" And then as they did so, they started noticing other men were starting to come out of these, come out of the rooms from this concentration, this, this prison camp. They started to come out of the rooms and started to make their way around, around the, and they started to join in. And all of a sudden, what started out with just a few men started to swell, and now there's 50 men that are singing there. They're singing Silent Night, Holy Night. And uh, they have their, their, their guns pointed at these men. Then they started, wait a minute, this is not a rebellion. Communists don't sing Silent Night. That, that's not part of the communist dream. They said, they're singing something that's Christian-related. And they said, well, this is crazy. What's going on here? And, and the numbers started swelling because more men started coming and joining them in the singing. So they called for one of their U.S. officials. They said, hey, you better come out and take a look at this thing here, what's going on. But before the official could get there, the report says there were as many as 500 men within minutes that joined that group. And they're all singing out loud, loudly and clearly. And they're singing, they're singing Christmas songs and hymns. And then under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Pastor M got very inspired. And he kept an old, worn-out little Bible inside of his pocket. He got up on top of a box. He stood on that box. He took out the little Bible, and he started reading the Bible to those men and preaching a message to them. And soon they said before, before they could, that official got there, someone else got the chaplain for the, for the area who happened to know some Korean. They brought the chaplain over. He started listening to what this man is preaching. He said, guards, put your guns down. These men, th this guy is a preacher. I'm going to check him out. I'm going to vet him, but I think this guy's a preacher. And so, he, so after he finished preaching that message, he pulled Pastor Emma aside. He started talking to him. He said, Pastor, he said, sir, what's your name? And he got the man's testimony, found out some things, and he said, you know what, I believe who you are. And he understood this man's testimony, that he was a pastor, and he had a little country church there before the communists took over. And he understood this man was heartbroken because his wife and his children, he had had no contact with them for many, many months. And she said, well, listen, we can't let you go, but I will give you special privileges. And so we asked the, po the, the powers of the be to give him an armband that signified that this man was allowed to preach the gospel and go from, go from, from, from uh, room to room to room to all those men and, and to meet them. Well, it wasn't long after that that God inspired Pastor M to start Bible study. And it started out with just a few men. And it swelled. And over a period of time, 1,200 men were meeting in daily Bible studies early in the morning. They were singing hymns. And it wasn't long after that, they say that over 6,000 men went through Bible courses that this man was teaching through there. And it wasn't long after that, that soon they were released. And they said 600 men after that were trained even further. They went to Bible college and trained even further. And their fan down and spread across all of Korea at that time. 600 men that were claiming the gospel of Jesus Christ and talking about the grace of God and what God had done for them there at that camp, all because of one man by the name of Pastor M, who was like a child that needed to be weaned. He was crying, and he was whining, and he was stressed out, and he was anxious, and he's worried, wondering what's going on. He came to that place like David did, where he had this personal humility. He humbled himself and accepted his circumstances. He humbled himself and realized, God, your plan is greater than my plan, and your plan doesn't bother with what I wear and how I feel, and whether I have food or not. Your plan is bigger than me. He humbled himself, and he says, my, he says, my heart is not haughty, neither am I eyes lofty, neither do I exercise myself in great matters. He exercised his personal humility, and he came to this realization as he humbled himself that a peaceful hush came over his soul. And this peaceful hush, he said, I surely, I have behaved and quieted myself as a child that is weaned of his mother. My soul is as a weaned child. He came to the realization that peace like a river flooded his soul. He said, it was well with my soul. The soul of a weaned child is content because it knows everything is right. It knows everything's going to turn around. He had the soul of a weaned child, but he was at the place because of where God had put him. There was a permeating hope he gave to a bunch of prisoners inside of that campground. 
Is that a prison camp? He gave them hope and saying, what I have, I want you to have. What God's done in my heart, I want you to have. And there was this permeating hope. And because of that, 600 men fanned out of there and went, went and preached the gospel. Can I tell you something? Your influence is beyond just knocking on a few doors. And your influence is greater than just giving out a few tracts. Your influence is how you handle stress and how you handle trials and difficulties and worry and anxiety. Your influence goes out. How are you under pressure? Are you someone that can humble yourself? Are you someone that can experience the peaceful life? Are you someone that can come out rejoicing and excited and enthused and fired up because you know God is good and you know God loves you and you know God is in control and you know God's peace is perfect. Great peace of they which love thy, or that love, love his law and nothing shall offend them. And you're at this place that you have this perfect peace of God and you can get out and say, listen, I've got you to have to understand Jesus is the best that you can ever have. It's sweet to have Jesus. He took my yoke. He took my load. He took my burden. And it's sweet and it's good and it's wonderful. But listen, we live in a day and age of comfortable, lukewarm Christianity. We walk around with our heads bunched over and our shoulders bunched over and our backs bent over because we think it's so hard. It's so hard to get up at 6 o'clock in the morning. It's so hard to go to work. It's so hard to go to church. It's so hard to put a tie on. It's hard to have standards. It's hard to live for God. It's hard to read my Bible. I'm going to tell you what. When you go through a trial, it's not hard anymore. You go through some difficult time, you say, Jesus is the sweetest name I know. And it's wonderful to be saved. And it's wonderful to be a Christian. And it's wonderful to have God's peace. And it's wonderful to have God's peace. I'm saying tonight, we need to come to that place of spiritual maturity. Our soul is as a weaned child. There is humility. There's hush. And we can tell other people, there's a powerful hope that God wants to give to you too. Do you have that hope? Can you give that to other people? Do your friends come to you because they know that that hope is in your heart? I don't care about your title. Neither does God. Some preachers like to preach out because they want the influence. I preach out because I'm trying to invest in other lives. I got around 30 pastors yesterday. Just watch those guys walk in. Half of them were discouraged. They're discouraged with their churches. They're discouraged there's no growth. They're discouraged because church members are fighting them. They're discouraged because they can't get anybody to show up to help work around the church. As I was driving home yesterday, I thought, Lord, I had a lot of things to do, but I'm thankful I was able to invest in these men. You want a legacy? Greatest legacy you give to someone else is there's hope in the Lord. He's the God of hope. Who cares how much you gave? God's keeping track anyway, amen? Who cares what you gave? Who cares that building's named after you? What really counts, he gave me hope. She gave me hope. She's a living testimony of the grace of God working their life. He's a living testimony that he humbled himself and attained that peaceful hush and encourages other people with a permeating hope. Beloved, there's hope in the Lord. Let your soul be the soul of a weaned child. We've got to wean ourselves off a lot of junk. It's better to go from the liquids to the solids. It's better to go from the milk to the meat. It's better to go from the junk to Jesus. Amen?
Can you humble yourself tonight? Are you willing to ask God? Throw your hardest punch at me, Lord. So my soul can be a weaned child. And I can give a permeating hope. Then I'll tell you what, the, the missionaries, the pastors I know, they have the greatest influence. They're great soul winners, but you know what they have the greatest influence? They've been through some fires, some difficulties, and some trials. Their soul became as a weaned child. And they can get up confidently and say, let all Israel hope in the Lord. As I close tonight, let all of Heritage Baptist Church hope in the Lord. Amen? God is good. There's hope in the Lord. But it begins with a personal humility and a peaceful husband.